Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Union Chapel. Um, it's wonderful to see such a crowd here tonight. Um, we're delighted that you could make it and delighted that we have uh, two wonderful speakers this evening uh, to listen to. And we hope that tonight will be a rich environment for us to explore these extremely um, difficult at times, interesting, stimulating and ethical discussions. So a very warm welcome to all of you. Now, we do um, might have a lack of seats. However, I, I can see one, two, three, four empty seats down the front. I can spot them from here. So if you, ha if you do not have a seat and you would like, like one, there's, you can turn those two round and uh, sit comfortably. If you've got a, a seat, there we go. If, we got, if you've got a seat next to you that's empty, um, can you wave your arm in the air? Oh, look. Oh, no, I, I don't need a seat. It's all right. I'll just prop up the bar. Um, so there's, there's a couple of few seats around. Oh, brilliant. Okay. And if you're, yeah, there's a stall at the back. I think we've all got a seat. That's amazing. <laughs> Wonderful. So as long as you're comfortable, that's great. The bar is going to be open all the time. So do feel free to squeeze your way through if you're thirsty. We don't want you to um, get too thirsty, so go to the bar whenever you like. Um, and uh, our wonderful bartenders can produce drinks very quietly. So, um, so don't be fearful. The toilets, if you're interested in them, which you might do if you go to the bar a bit too often, uh, down the stairs and on the right. So uh, you can find them, they're very salubrious. If you'd like to donate some money for a new toilet block, we'd be very grateful to receive that. So um, this evening um, is an evening that we don't just want to uh, be talked at. We would also like some participation. And there will be an opportunity for you to bring some questions to our speakers this evening. And so we would invite you to write down anything that pops into your head. Um, and in between the shopping list, hopefully there'll be some interesting questions that we'll be able to discuss a little later on in the evening. Um, there's pens and papers around on the tables, but there's also some pens and papers on the corner of the bar. So um, do, if you really want to write down a question, do pick up a pen and a paper, write it down, and we're going to have a break so you can um, give us some questions. Um, to uh, stimulate the rest of the discussion for, for the evening. So we'd love to hear your voices as well. Um, our collection buckets. We, um, this is a free event, and we would love to do more of them. And if you've enjoyed this event and you would like more of them to happen, then please put some money in the donation bucket because it helps to cover the costs and helps us to be able to carry on to do stuff like this. Um, we think it's a really important thing for us to be um, just wrestling with some of these issues. Books. There's a few books for sale. And uh, our speakers um, have written some good stuff. So if you want to hear more from them, um, there's an opportunity to perhaps buy a book tonight or just write down the name of the book and you can go home and and Google it and, and find it another way. But do, um, they're just over there by the, by the side of the bar there. So do, at the end of the evening, have a quick look at that. 
So I think without further ado, it would be wonderful to introduce our guests tonight. Um, first of all, I would like to introduce Simon, who's behind me, <laughs> behind the music stand. Uh, Simon Barrow has travelled from Edinburgh to be with us today, and he's the director of Ecclesia, which is a Christian political think tank. And Simon is going to um, be uh, what's the word? Emceeing. Emceeing. Kind of, uh, yeah, yeah. I was thinking of ringing the bell, you know, that yeah. kind of yeah. So um, yeah, he's in control of the evening. So if it goes out of control, we can blame him. And. Uh, and to my right, we have Professor Nigel Bigger from the University of Oxford. And uh, he's written a book called In Defense of War. And uh, it's truly wonderful to have you here at the chapel, uh, Nigel. So a very warm welcome and really look forward to what you have to offer us this evening. And to my left is uh, Thomas Yoda Newfield. I haven't pronounced that correctly, have I? Oh, that's all right. He doesn't mind. He's a Mennonite. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Thomas has uh, uh, travelled uh, probably the furthest uh, out of all of us today um, and uh, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you so much for coming. I know you've come just for this event, which is truly remarkable. Um, and he's written a book called Jesus and the Subversion of Violence. Um, and he's spent 30 years teaching Bible and Peace at the Conrad Grable University College, uh, the University of Waterloo. So a very warm welcome to all three of you, and I'll hand over to Simon now, who's going to lead the proceedings from now on. Um, thanks very much, Karen. I'm the very short warm-up act, but as you can see, basically, you've got an a cappella group here uh, this evening, so that's the way it's, it's going to go. Um, just to say something about this, uh, it's, it's billed as a debate, and, you know, talking to both uh, Nigel and Tom, who I, I've, I've known Tom more recently, uh, we met as part of the tour that he's doing uh, across Britain at the moment, Nigel and I um, were involved in a group looking at issues of um, the, the Christian gospel and social transformation some years ago, so we've had contact. So we, we know each other. I think that's one of the reasons I've been asked to chair. And although it's billed as a debate, both of them have said, well, what we want here is a conversation. And of course, what we want is a conversation that involves uh, all of us. Um, as Karen has said, when it comes to the, the, the question bit, we are going to get you to write down some questions, and quite a number of people here. Because this is normally a music venue, and you'll be very glad that, well, I mean, I don't know about the other two, you'll be glad I'm not performing tonight, but because of that, they, they haven't actually booked a roving mic. So that partly uh, dictates the way we're going to take questions, but as well as taking some written questions, I do want to make some space for, you know, open questions at the end. We want to make it uh, as open as possible in those terms. The other thing to say is that if you were, there's, there's a wonderful graphic on the leaflet uh, that you will have either picked up or received digitally uh, for this event, um, and it embodies some of the, the tension and contradiction in Christians talking about war and peace. If you want to know who chose the tawdry title, um, who would Jesus shoot, that's down to me. I had a couple of interesting reactions. Someone said to me actually on Twitter today, well, the answer to that's obviously nobody, and someone else said, well, the question presupposes it must be somebody. So that just goes to show, in a sense, whichever way you begin to frame this debate, 
it, it begins to open up questions about assumptions, and I'm sure that will be part of the conversation. And what's going to happen is that um, Nigel and uh, Tom are going to speak for about 25 minutes uh, each. So, you know, with your pieces of paper, if there are sort of questions or things that, that you're thinking of, do make a note on your piece of paper. They're both going to speak. Then we're going to take a break, and you're going to get a chance to uh, put any written questions you want um, over on the bar area there, which kind of also encourages you to go to the bar, I guess. I think someone must have been planning that one. Um, and then we will um, take those up, and Karen and I will, will use some of the questions. But what will happen immediately after the break is that Tom and Nigel will have a chance to ask each other questions, and then we'll move into your questions and then to open questions. So that's basically what's going to happen. So I'm sure it's going to be a, a great evening, and delighted to uh, invite Nigel to present to us first. Just before I left Oxford this evening, my wife tried to persuade me that I was underdressed for this event. Uh, I, I look forward to going back and telling her that I was right. <laughs> it, 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 it's not a pleasure I get very often, so I'm going to use it. Um, so my, my plan is not to speak for more than 25 minutes. If I, if I threaten to do that, Simon, you're welcome to kick me in the shins and I'll wrap up. Um, the other thing is, that I, I, I'm often tempted to start wandering around, but if I do that, the, the mic will lose me and you'll lose me, so if I do it, just someone tell me to stand still, or he'll, he'll, he'll do that, good, okay. So who would Jesus shoot? Um, as you probably know, he didn't actually shoot anybody. Um, he was capable, I think, of, of verbal violence. Uh, take this from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 23. Eh? But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, blind guides, you blind fools, you blind men. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you blind guides. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? That's Jesus. Those are violent words. He was also, at least once, physically violent, um, overturning tables in the temple but not, as far as we're told, was he violent against any human person. So the question uh, for those of us who want to try and follow Jesus is this. What should we infer, what should we conclude from that? Well, there are two options. One, the Christian pacifist option, Namely, that no follower of Jesus should ever use physical violence against another human being, no matter what the circumstances. The other option is the Christian just war option, the one I take, which is that followers of Jesus usually shouldn't use violence against other people, but sometimes they should. Now, what reasons are there for choosing the second option over the first. Well, here are 
some proposals from me. First of all, Jesus' rejection of violence should be interpreted in terms of his historical context. The particular kind of violence available to Jesus, indeed pressed upon him, was the violence of the Jewish zealots. The zealots were militant Jewish nationalists who waged a guerrilla campaign against the Romans, including targeted assassinations by the, what they were called, Sicarii, after the dagger they used. And I don't think it would be, be stretching things to suggest that the zealots were something like a Jewish version of Islamic State, motivated as they were by a religiously inspired hatred of the oppressive pagan Romans. So when Jesus rejected violence, he rejected their kind of violence. And in doing so, he wanted to make it quite clear that in his eyes, the kingdom of God does not come by means of the hatred of infidels and by their slaughter. So we shouldn't generalize Jesus' nonviolence into an absolute prohibition, especially the prohibition of the use of violent force by public authority to protect the innocent against the wicked. That's one reason for not concluding from Jesus' behavior and teaching that all violence everywhere is wrong. A second reason is this. It lies in the four passages in the Gospels and in the Acts of the Apostles where soldiers enter and leave the stage without ever being reprimanded for being soldiers. In Luke 3, uh, John the Baptist doesn't exhort soldiers to abandon their profession. He just tells them to stop being extortionate. Okay, John the Baptist wasn't Jesus, so we maybe put that aside. But in Matthew 8 and Luke 7, Jesus marvels at the faith of, of the centurion whose servant he's healed, but raises no questions about the man's military profession. Mark 15, um, it's a centurion at the foot of the cross who is the first human character in the gospel to recognize Jesus as the Son of God. And in Acts 10, the centurion Cornelius, described as, quote, an upright and God-fearing man converts to the Christian faith, but there is no indication that he is supposed to renounce his profession. Now, it's true uh, that um, some people, and I'm thinking particularly of the, the very um, eminent New Testament scholar Richard Hayes, uh, some people argue that uh, the stories about the soldiers in, in the Gospels have a very particular purpose, that they're intended to show that God's kingdom can embrace even sinners like these, even soldiers. That, that's their particular purpose. And therefore, it's argued, we, we can't infer any, um, uh, any active or passive um, uh, condemnation, approval of their profession. Well, I don't think this argument works. If you want to see the, the full version, you can buy the incredibly cheap copy of my book over there on the left. Uh, um, but if you don't want to spend money, then here are at least two reasons I have for not 
buying that interpretation of these soldier narratives in the Gospels and Acts of the Apostles. One is, the centurion at Capernaum and the centurion Cornelius are not presented to the reader as sinners. Another reason is that sinners who become Christian disciples in the Gospels and in the Acts of the Apostles are invariably portrayed as renouncing their sinful practices. Uh, for example, in the, in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, the Ephesian magicians who became believers are, uh, we're told that they publicly burned their magic books. Um, and as I've, I've said, that uh, Cornelius uh, wasn't um, apparently moved to stop being a soldier even after his conversion. Uh, we could also mention that um, the Gospel of Luke makes a point of showing that a tax collector's salvation involves the public mending of his extortionate ways, but on no occasion does a soldier's salvation apparently involve the renunciation of military service. So if the New Testament understood Jesus to mean non-violence always and everywhere, and regarded therefore participation in the military as sinful, surely its authors would have taken care to tell us that soldiers who became Christians renounced their profession. That they don't amounts to a silence that I think speaks extremely loudly. It is silence, it's an argument from silence, but it's a loud silence. So there's, there's the second reason for not inferring from Jesus' conduct an absolute prohibition of violence. The third is this, and of course it's very familiar to you, it's Romans 13 verses uh, 1 to 7 and, and the, the previous chapter 12. Here St. Paul is urging Christians in Rome not to avenge themselves upon their Jewish persecutors by taking the law into their own hands and thereby posing a threat to public order. And he urges them instead to suffer in love and to trust the public authorities to do their basic job, their basic job of using force to defend the innocent against the wicked. And in the course of this particular exhortation, Paul affirms a point of principle. He says, the governing authorities have been ordained by God to wield the sword to execute God's wrath upon the wrongdoer. And from this, I conclude that Paul himself did not understand the moral significance of Jesus to exclude all kinds of violence. Now, I'll come back to that in a, in a brief moment. But let me give you the fourth reason for not uh, making a pacifist reading of the Gospels and, it, and the Acts of the Apostles, and that is that um, it, it's widely held that Christ, the Christian church was overwhelmingly pacifist uh, until uh, Constantine came along, got converted, uh, the Christian religion became tolerated, and then in its lust for power became corrupt in the 300s. Um, that story is no longer um, held, it's, it's no longer the consensus among scholars. Um, the consensus now is that um, at least from the end of the second century, Christian opinion and practice on the matter of violence was divided, that throughout the third century, Christian support for military service grew, and that Christian just war thinking uh, stands in continuity with at least one strand of pre-Constantinian tradition. In other words, um, 
The truth is that from fairly early on, and certainly before Constantine, there were two traditions in Christianity, not one. Now, uh, I, I need to, 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 to take defensive action um, against a point I think Tom might make. So this is, this is, a, pre this is a preemptive strike. <laughs> of course, he may not make it at all, in which case it's a waste of time, but still. Um, I, I want to go back to Romans 12 and 13. Uh, because there is a, a classic Mennonite interpretation that avoids uh, a, a kind of just violence interpretation of Romans 12:13, And this says that the public use of the sword is indeed ordained by God, but it is not to be assumed by Christians. So other people are ordained by God to wield the sword. Christians have a different vocation to bear witness to the coming peaceable kingdom. Okay? So if my interpretation is going to stand, I need to um, rebut that. Here's how I try to do that. And I'm going to, I'm going to repeat this first point twice because it even it confuses me. Um, were it true that a simply peaceable kingdom were currently practicable in this world as an alternative to a kingdom whose order is kept by force, then a benevolent God would have ordained the peaceable kingdom instead. So the fact that Paul tells us that God has ordained the coercive kingdom, the kingdom whose order is kept by force, implies that the simply peaceful one is not currently practicable as an alternative, and that it is therefore currently parasitic upon the coercive one. That's to say, Pacifist Christian communities can only exist in a society where the sword is used to maintain order. That's, that's my, my argument. And this, it seems to me, puts Christian pacifists in the intellectually incoherent position of contradicting in principle what they depend upon in practice and in the morally inconsistent position of keeping their own hands clean while other people get theirs, theirs dirty. Didn't mean to be so sharp, but I guess that's, that's, that, that's, the, that's the issue as I see it. So it seems to me it would be better to regard the peaceable kingdom as the ideal goal of the coercive one, not as, the, uh, as a current alternative to it, and that therefore this, this, this ideal, which by God's grace we will realize at the end of time, should qualify the necessary use of force here and now rather than displace it. But that's exactly the position uh, that the Christian theory of just war takes. Okay, so uh, just um, putting aside for a little bit um, the Bible. Um, one question I imagine that might arise in your, in your minds uh, as I'm talking is, okay, whatever he says about the Bible, how on earth, how on earth can the waging of war be Christian, okay? Well, the, the crucial move is made by St. Augustine uh, when uh, he's in correspondence with a Christian military tribune responsible for law and order, 
And clearly, the Christian Military Tribune is a bit troubled by what, by what his profession requires him to do. And uh, um, what Augustine responds is this. And he's commenting on Romans 12, 17, where Paul says, don't return evil for evil. And what Augustine says is, in effect, this. What that means is we should uh, refuse revenge. Refuse revenge. Okay? So the, the crucial move here is to interpret what Jesus is saying as um, a repudiation of vengeful motive, not as a repudiation of forceful acts. That's, that's the crucial move. Uh, the next way in which Christians um, uh, use violence, well, the, the next way in which the use of violence can be Christian is by ordering the use of violence toward a just and therefore stable peace. So for Christians, uh, the use of violent force can never be to annihilate the enemy, nor to make him suffer. The, uh, the goal of the use of violent force can only be to rectify a grave injustice and establish a just peace. When that's done, no more violence is necessary or therefore permitted. A third Christian qualification is that the use of violence is qualified by love for the neighbor. Now, in one sense, this is straightforward. So if violence is being used to defend the innocent, then of course it can be construed as an act of love for the innocent neighbor. But the difficult thing for uh, someone in my position is a Jesus' injunction that we must love our enemies too. How on earth can one love an enemy one is fighting against? Well, not in the full sense, I, I grant. Not in the full sense, I grant. There, there, there is, if you're wounding or killing an enemy, there is clearly a, a, an irreducible element here of tragedy. Um, but I think that there are different ways of killing, frankly. Um, It's not true, generally speaking, that combat soldiers hate the enemy. They, they, often, they often see the enemy um, um, as a professional opponent. Sometimes they do, but it's not necessary. Um, I've never been involved in combat. I have spoken to those who have, and I, I uh, perhaps to my shame, I read far too much military history. And um, what I've noticed is, um, on several occasions, uh, soldiers um, coming back from the front lines and expressing disgust at discovering a degree of hatred among civilians for the enemy that was not present among frontline soldiers. I can give you several examples, but here's one uh, from George Orwell, uh, with whom I'm sure you're familiar. Uh, Orwell fought um, briefly for six months um, with a, an anarchist group in the Spanish Civil War. And uh, um, he was wounded. And when he came back to England uh, in 1937, he wrote an account of his experiences, uh, which is published under the title Homage to Catalonia. And in this account, among other things, he notes that uh, vilification of the enemy was common among civilians, but not at all among combatants. Quote, 
One of the most horrible features of war is that all the screaming and lies and hatred comes invariably from people who are not fighting. And then he goes on, uh, um, he was in fact shot in the throat by, uh, a, Republic, uh, by a fascist sniper. And um, substantiating from his own experience the claim that combatants don't normally hate the enemy, he reports his own, his own uh, feelings of, quote, a vague sorrow at the screaming of the poor wretch caught in the explosion of his hand grenade attack on the enemy's trenches. And of his reaction to the sniper who shot him through the throat, he writes, I could not feel any resentment against him. I reflected that as he was a fascist, I would have killed him if I could, but that if he had been taken prisoner and brought before me at this moment, I would merely have congratulated him on his good shooting. Now, I've not been in combat. He was. Um, so it's not one way in which one can love the enemy is by withholding oneself from hatred um, and um, um, holding the enemy in a certain kind of respect. The other is in, in withholding oneself from using any more violence than is strictly necessary. The aim is not to, actually not to kill the enemy, the, the aim is to disable him. And once he's disabled, there is no justification for more killing, which is why you may remember there was a Royal Marine convicted last year of shooting dead a wounded Taliban. Um, uh, he was convicted because the shooting was against international law, um, um, but, but the, the, the moral logic of the law is the same logic here, that once the enemy is disabled, the job is done. There's no need for further killing. And, and lots of uh, experienced military people approved of his conviction. Finally, um, I, I need to make it clear that um, Christian pacifists and Christian just warriors do have a lot in common, actually. Um, um, that um, last war, uh, just war is only a last resort. Of course, um, um, primary efforts need to be put into the prevention of the outbreak of conflict in the first place. And if peaceful means can be effective in resolving conflict that has broken out, they should be used. The only question is whether there are circumstances where peaceful means of resolving conflict uh, are not effective and therefore violent means should be assumed. But by the same token, just warrior, Christian just warriors recognize that if uh, the use of force cannot be used morally, one must cease to use it, and the Christian warrior must clamber down off his war horse uh, get on his knees and join the pacifist in praying God to protect what he, um, what they, uh, may not protect because there are no moral means available. So at that point, the Christian just warrior and the Christian pacifist are on the same level, literally. Just uh, one last thing, two last things. Um, the, 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 the fundamental um, requirement of just war in, in Christian tradition uh, is that it, um, there should be a grave injustice to put right. Uh, contrary to, to some versions of just war theory, the paradigm of just war 
in Christian tradition is not self-defense. It is the rescue of the innocent or the defense of the innocent, which may take aggressive or defensive forms. Um, but it's recognized that, that there may be forms of injustice that are worth bearing because war is undoubtedly a highly destructive, highly unpredictable way of trying to do justice. Uh, and therefore, the reasons have to be very, very strong. The injustice has to be very, very bad. Uh, think Holocaust, perhaps. Think mass atrocity. Maybe think Islamic State. Uh, but some forms of injustice are worth bearing. Uh, in my own view, the IRA's campaign of violence in Northern Ireland was unjustified for, for several reasons. Um, um, uh, the oppression of Catholics was, was bad wasn't nearly as bad as the oppression of, of blacks in the American South. And at the same time, Martin Luther King was leading a, a, a very largely peaceful campaign uh, to change things there, which was remarkably successful. Um, the other reason is that the vast majority of Catholics in Northern Ireland did not support violence. Okay, so, but there would be a case where there is injustice, but better to bear it and, and use gradually democratic means or civil protest to overcome it. Final thing is, um, remember that peace isn't simple. Peace isn't simple. Our staying at peace, which is good for us, doesn't mean that other people are left at peace. So we, in this country and in Europe and in America, we stayed at peace in 1994, which was great for us. Unfortunately, our staying at peace left the Hutu in Rwanda at peace to hack to death 800,000 Tutsis. Likewise, in 1995, we stayed at peace in Europe and in America, which was good for us. But our staying at peace left Ratko Mladic at peace to engineer a mini Holocaust of 8,000 Muslim men and boys at Srebrenica. Peace isn't simple. Peace for us doesn't always mean peace for our neighbors. Thanks very much. Nigel, thank you very much. Tom, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Well, it's a, <clears throat> it's, a great, um, it's a great honor as a Canadian to be invited to speak to uh, you folks here in Britain. Um, and I already want to uh, preemptively apologize if I make any kinds of statements that in any sense would uh, express um, lack of sensitivity to, to uh, perspectives and, um, um, uh, that, that you might have. Uh, I want to speak very much as a Christian and as a Christian brother, uh, as a member of the body of Christ. So given the short time we have, let me lay out the fundamental approach I will take in my comments. I'm a pacifist. But as you know, there are a great, uh, or there is a great variety of pacifisms, from secular, anthropologically optimistic rejection of war as a means of settling disputes, um, uh, 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 to various kinds of pacifisms rooted in religious conviction. I'm grateful, personally, for everyone 
who is committed to finding another way than violence and war to deal with the conflicts that inevitably attend our life together as a human community. I think we have much to learn from each other and much to collaborate on. But I am addressing our topic as a Christian pacifist. And let me say what I mean by that. Here's my confessional stance. I confess Jesus to be Lord. I know that's an ancient imperial term. Um, it's also an ancient biblical term. It's hierarchical, dominating, etc. But I take Jesus to be my and our boss, our commander. I confess, secondly, that in and through Christ's incarnation, teaching, healing, death, and resurrection, God has and is making peace with humanity. Thirdly, I've pledged myself in my baptism to being a part of what the Apostle Paul calls the body of the Messiah, what we call the church, the community of faith, which is drawn into the Messiah's mission in the world, heeding the teachings of Jesus and following him in life. Those are absolutely critical for understanding the approach I take. So the fundamental question I would want to pose for us is this. How do those who confess Jesus to be Lord, who have come to know God as one who has made peace in and through Christ, the crucified and risen one, who are part of the community we call the body of Christ, that Christ, behave in a violent world? Or more pointedly, what does it mean for them who call Jesus Lord that their boss or their commander summons them not to retaliate, to put the sword away, to be peacemakers, and most importantly, to love their enemies? That's the fundamental question uh, that I think we face. And I'll contend that the answer is that in their response to injustice, to threats and violence, they emulate the way Jesus responded to violence and injustice. The way the Gospels put it, they are to take up their own cross if they wish to find life. And that implies, in my view, a clear and resolute rejection of participation in war and retaliatory violence. Just as or more importantly, it requires a resolute commitment to peacemaking, indeed to pursuing peace, seeking the justice of the kingdom of God, as the Sermon on the Mount puts it. Now, I'm highly conscious of this moment in time in your nation and mine. The air is again full of war rhetoric, or at least the question is frequently asked, as it was already tonight by Nigel, what does one do about the Islamic State? Further, I'm aware that this week, and in fact this whole year, has been a time of remembering. Um, not, not least also in my country of Canada. It is 100 years since the beginning of World War I, and the, the end of which, by the way, we marked yesterday. And we've remembered 
an enormous, unfathomable loss of life in that war alone. The sacrifice of blood and treasure for the sake of country. I visited the Sea of Red Poppies at the Tower of London, which very dramatically and emotionally evokes the river of blood, the lives lost, almost a million of British and Commonwealth soldiers. That loss is as important to measure as it is important to remember. A loss compounded in World War II just two decades later in which many more millions died. And again and again since. It is important to remember also what we wish to forget. Namely, those millions of lives that ended at the hands of those dead we remember. Those who came back terribly wounded in body, mind, and relationships, often left to suffer those terrible wounds on their own as their nation resumed its business, wishing to forget the carnage and its lingering aftermath. We must remember, too, how much as in past centuries, the economies of our countries were built on the backs of slaves or on the colonial exploitation of other nations. So our economies today, and that's as true in Canada as it is in the United Kingdom, are heavily dependent on the military industrial juggernaut. We live in economies that are geared to preparing for war. I have found it beyond sobering as well to remember that if we take as a definition of a Christian somebody who has been baptized into the church, that in that great war that we refer to as World War I, and that's true also in World War II, that it was overwhelmingly Christians who killed Christians by the millions. Has the church really faced the horror of that dismembering of Christ's body? It's important also to remember that for the most part, that killing has not happened with reluctance. As Stephen Jenkins has pointed out in his current book, The Great and Holy War, the church often led the way in rendering the great war as a holy war. Nigel mentions that often civilians have more hatred for the enemy than the soldiers do. The soldiers were often urged on by their pastors and priests when they would just as soon not have shot. We dare not forget those many, many fewer ones whose consciences did not permit them to participate in the carnage of war, but who often paid the price with imprisonment, ostracism, and often outright hostility from the church. Rather than seeing them as healthy cells within the body of Christ, they were frequently viewed as a virus that needed to be gotten rid of. 
Let me suggest then a different kind of remembering, a remembering not so much of the past, as crucial as that is, but a remembering with the one we confess to be our Lord, the one who came preaching and making peace and who gave his life for us while we were still enemies, as Paul says. So, what kind of a Lord is that who calls the shots, if I can be cute? Strangely, and this really is strange, regardless of our stance on the legitimacy of violence, we mostly agree on Jesus. I dare say no one here thought the poster for this debate not to be sort of funny and provocative. Why? Why could that picture not be extracted from our stained glass window if, in fact, we as Christians think it is not only permissible but mandatory that we take up the gun when it's necessary? Why would Jesus not lead the way and show us how you can kill while loving your enemy? Virtually everyone in our culture knows that shooting, love, and Jesus don't go on to the same poster. Since we mostly agree on that, what does Jesus, our Lord, order us to do in the Gospels? Well, the first thing is that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, its justice. The kind of pacifism I talk about is no stranger to justice. It's passionate about justice. They are not opposites. Justice lies at the heart of the gospel of peace. But what kind of justice is this, and how is it made? Well, Jesus models for us outrage at abuse and violence. And Nigel read Matthew 23. I could add to that Matthew 18, and we could just keep adding places where Jesus loses his cool, especially when the vulnerable are abused. But Jesus never closes the door on love for the abuser, making sure via forgiveness and the efforts to retrieve and to stop that behavior that the door is not closed to repentance and reconciliation. Killing cannot keep that door open. Jesus denounced poverty and he fed the hungry, but loved both poor and wealthy, even if he challenged the latter to give their wealth to the poor. Becoming wealthy at the expense of others and then using the structures of violence the military and the police, to protect or expand economic privileges is the most profound betrayal of Jesus. Most churches get anxious if our governments do not protect our economic privilege. Pacifists who are that because they follow Jesus do not wish, in fact, to stay home, to keep their hands clean, but they wish, in fact, to get their hands dirty, cleaning up the mess of war and violence. They say no to violence and war because they see the profundity of war's betrayal of the one who killed the enmity through his own death, as Ephesians 2 reminds us. 
But far more importantly, they say yes to peace, and they say it with their bodies. They seek, they make, and indeed they pursue peace, seizing every opportunity to participate in God's saving of the world. Peacemakers are there where there is conflict. Like Christian peacemaker teams, just to give you one example among many such groups. They are missionary doctors in the Ebola-stricken countries of Africa. They are evangelists and church planters in neighborhoods stricken by despair and poverty. The list of creative endeavors of peacemakers in the mold of Jesus who care passionately about this world and its injustice and violence is far too long for me to elaborate in the few minutes I have. But all of them share in countless ways in God's vulnerable and scandalously patient love for the world. But pacifists do so within the constraints of saying no to killing the, en the enemy. And as every artist and musician knows, including those who have used this wonderful venue, constraints are the fuel of creativity. You mentioned Martin Luther King earlier. Martin Luther King was committed to nonviolence. That is why his movement was so powerful. And he had learned from Gandhi, who was committed to nonviolence, how and how that can happen. So the constraints saying no to violence is precisely part of the creative urge that leads to such uh, peacemaking. Pacifists pursue peace like artists. Now, such kind of peacemaking can look like weakness. It can look like passivity. But such patient pursuit of peace makes no sense apart from the radical reliance on God's care and vindication expressed in the resurrection of Jesus. You can turn the cheek, you can walk the second mile, and you can give the last bit of clothing you have. And those may not be simply passive suffering, but as Walter Wink has reminded us, creative resistance, you might say defiant vulnerability, seizing the initiative. But they are most certainly a mode of behavior that counts on God's care. God is part of the picture. That is why even the just warrior gets off the horse to pray. The pacifist is on his knees a bit earlier. That is how Jesus lived, and that is how he demands his followers live. Again, Christians mostly agree on Jesus. Jesus lived to bring the kingdom. Jesus didn't killed to save us, Jesus died to save us. So the big question is, what about us? How did it come that our behavior became, I'm saying our, as members of the church, I'm generalizing now, came to be disconnected from the way Jesus got involved? Are we not his body? How did it happen that God's way of responding to human violence in and through Jesus, does not translate into the actions of his church. Now, please remember, I'm speaking to us. I'm not speaking to Whitehall or to the White House. 
I don't think they'd be buying this line to begin with. Because if you're going to be the President of the United States, you've already taken a vow, ironically, by putting your hand on the Bible to look after the interests of the American national enterprise before you're going to be a Christian. That's what you've decided to do. And that we see unfolding as the days go by. So let me put it very bluntly. If we think turning the cheek, loving the enemy, pursuing peace, preaching the gospel of peace, giving our lives for not only our friends but our enemies, is doing nothing about violence, is being passive in the face of real evil, is being morally irresponsible, then we are in the wrong religion. Because every time we celebrate the liturgy, we participate in the Eucharist, are baptized into the name of Jesus, we are saying that God did take charge, that, God, that Jesus did save. For our confession to be coherent, it needs to be no less true for how we are in the world and responding to violence. This is not staying home and doing nothing or keeping our hands clean. This is entering like light into the darkness. Are there questions? Absolutely. I wish we had more time. I'd love to engage in a discussion about Romans 13, and maybe there's a chance to do that. But I read that chapter not through the eyes of Augustine. I start at chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to offer your very bodies as a living sacrifice, not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed in your thinking. I read the end of chapter 12 as saying, do not overcome evil by means of violence, but overcome evil with good. I read verses 1 to 7, and then go on to verses 8 through the end of the chapter, which calls us to take up the weapons of light, to put on Jesus Christ. So we can have a discussion about what Romans 13 is intended to do. I find it hugely problematic to lift that passage out and essentially to give Nero, he was the Caesar at the time this was written, permission to demand Christians to take up the sword in his enterprise. Because ever since Constantine, and perhaps already a bit earlier in some lines or developments within the church, I'm sure Constantine found a willing girlfriend in the church by the fourth century. Ever since then, whoever has been Nero has been able to count on the church's collaboration, and usually with the church's blessing. And that has been part of the history of also the ethical rationale that we call the just war theory. That's tragic in my view. I'm troubled by the fact that our ethical calculus doesn't quite take into, into reality the fact that most of us are actually being left out of the fighting by now. We've just remembered World War I. Most of us will never have a chance to be involved in combat because increasingly we are developing in our rich Christian countries, I put that in quotation marks, ever more lethal technologized ways of killing them and leaving us safe. We've got to catch up in our thinking about the ethical constructs we use to make sense of that. So I ask this question, 
who are the conscientious objectors? Are they pacifists? Or are they those who confess Jesus as Lord, but say, sometimes it's necessary for me to disobey? Who are the COs? Who are the conscies? I'm suggesting it's the just war tradition that is the conscientious objection to what Jesus clearly calls us to. So who would Jesus shoot? I'd like to put it a little differently. What would Jesus shoot? I think he would put the bullet straight through the heart of our military ways of solving the world's problems. In fact, Ephesians suggests that he killed enmity, an act of murder. What was the artillery? His own life. And if we call ourselves the body of Christ, we are implicated in precisely that form of marksmanship. That is why we wear the body, the, the, the armor of God and exercise faith, hope, love, justice, and the gospel of peace. Thank you.